The Intellectual Challenge of the Gospel by Cornelius Van Til, THM, Ph.D., Tyndall Press, London, 1950. This is a lecture he gave in London in 1950, and this is really good stuff. We've come to the next topic, which is inconsistent Protestantism. It is in Protestantism, then, that we must look for a real challenge of the wisdom of the world as Paul engaged in it. But not all Protestants are consistent Protestants. Since all men remain sinful, no Protestant is, of course, fully consistent. But it is not that of which we speak. We speak, rather, of the relative consistency with which, the, with which those who are Protestants have cleansed themselves of the old leaven of Romanism. And this old leaven of Romanism consists in combining Christian teaching based on Scripture as the final infallible revelation of God to sinful men with the teaching of human experience as interpreted independently of Scripture. To indicate the difference between more or less consistent Protestantism, reference may be made here uh, to the, final, the fine little book of the late Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield entitled The Plan of Salvation, Grand Rapids, 1935. Warfield's contention is that Romanists are inconsistent supernaturalists because they refrain in their thinking, they retain in their thinking that which comes from foreign, that is, non-biblical sources. Further, he also contends, and this is the point of importance here, that non-reformed, that is non-Calvinistic Protestants, he calls them evangelicals, are inconsistently evangelical because they retain in their thinking something that comes ultimately from foreign or non-biblical sources. <clears throat> With the Romanists, the non-Calvinistic Protestant treasures the doctrine of autonomy of the human will, so far as to enable it some measure to resist the ultimate plan of God. We may now develop briefly the implications of Warfield's argument for apologetic purposes. How shall a Protestant really challenge the wisdom of the world in the way that the Apostle Paul requires him to do? If he self-consciously retains some measure of this very wisdom of the world in his own system of thought. The Romanist doctrine of the human will involves the idea of ultimacy or autonomy. To be sure, Romanism teaches the doctrine of creation, or rather it teaches a doctrine of creation. For the Roman doctrine of creation is intermingled with the Aristotelian, Aristotelian doctrine of self-movement from pure potentiality to pure actuality. Accordingly, the will of man is thought of as sharing in the freedom of God. Its freedom is therefore the ability to initiate that which is wholly new, for God as well as for man. It will be observed that the Romanist doctrine of the human will is involved in the idea of being in general. God and man have the same sort of freedom because both participate in the same being. God has more freedom than has man, but the freedom of man is still precisely the same nature as the freedom of God. Moreover, as the freedom of man is involved in and involves the idea of being in general, so it is also involved in and involves the idea of thought in general. God and man are in their freedom confronted with the necessity of being, and therefore with the necessity of logic that dwells in being. It is abstract rationality rather than the nature of God with which man deals when he engages in the logical manipulation of the facts of the universe. In other words, he's saying that logic is something purely independent of God that exists out there, like in the realm of ideals in Greek thinking. Therefore, he seeks to determine what is possible and what is impossible in the same way that Parmenides or any other non-Christian philosopher might do. Parmenides assumed that the human mind is non-created and therefore is of the same ultimacy as the divine mind. For him, the human mind has the right and the task to legislate as to what can and cannot exist. On such a basis, God cannot exist as a creator of man. 
If God does exist as the creator of man, then what is possible and what is impossible depends upon the will of God. Then men's dealings are with the revelation of this God. To be sure, <coughs> the will of God then expresses only that which is in accord with the nature of God. But what is possible according to the nature of God expresses itself to man by the way of the will of God. For man, that is possible, that which God, by, way, by an expression of his will, has already shown or said to be possible, and that is impossible, which God may show or say to be impossible. He who recognizes God as his creator should therefore use his God-given powers of intellectual or logical manipulation, not for the purpose of legislating about abstract possibility and impossibility, but for the purpose of ordering as best as he can the revelation materials in which he lives, in which the revelational material in which he lives moves and has his being. To sum up the matter is, is this. The Protestant thinks of himself as a creature and as a sinner. Now that he's been saved by grace, therefore he seeks to submit his mind and heart wholly and without reserve to the revelation of God and Scripture. The Romanist, on the other hand, though, holding himself to be a creature and uh, sinner who holds him, uh, <clears throat> also holds himself to be a participant with God in the same abstract generality of being and of logic. He therefore accepts his orders in part from God and also in part from his own direct experience of the nature of being and rationality. Now just keep in mind, people who believe, uh, they've taken Arminianism to the extent of teaching that um, God doesn't know the future and that God is limited and all these kinds of things. They're doing the exact same thing as the Roman Catholics do in their thinking. Uh, same thing with modernists and liberals who say, well, miracles are impossible. They're looking at things as independent of God. They're looking at things as if they're as ultimate as God, where once you admit that only God is ultimate, only God is truly transcendent and absolute, then we must subject everything to God, what God says. Now, the Armenian Protestant, in all these respects, largely controlled by the Protestant principle of submission to Scripture. Yet he's retained in his thinking some measure of the Romanist idea of the ultimacy of human experience. And it is this legacy of Romanism, which in the last analysis is really a legacy of the non-Christian thought which makes it quite impossible for the Arminian to fulfill the requirement of Paul with respect to challenging the wisdom of this world. Arminianism and the Bible. <clears throat> that Arminianism is not able to challenge the wisdom of the world as Paul would have us do is first of all apparent with respect to the question of Scripture. And he has here a footnote. Uh, when we are thinking of inconsistent Protestantism, we are thinking primarily of the Arminian point of view where man's will is ultimate, like God's will. Arminianism cannot do full justice to the Protestant doctrine of Scripture. Its notion of the freedom of man involves the idea of pure contingency. Man is said or assumed to be able to do that, which is wholly beyond the control of God. We are told by Gene Norman Bartlett that the tenet of all sufficiency of God is in need of radical alterations. Bartlett proposes that we think of God as both infinite and finite at one and the same time. That is to say, he is infinite with respect to one aspect of his nature and finite with respect to another. John Thomas speaks of the self-limitation of God in the interest of the freedom of man. That's exactly what Arminians say. Yeah, God is sovereign, but he voluntarily limits his own nature so man can have a true, truly independent free will. So man can have true autonomy, which of course is irrational and contradicts scripture explicitly. God can't act against his own nature. God can't not be God. It's just ridiculous. 
John Thomas speaks of the self-limitation of God in the interest of the freedom of man. The important thing to note is the arguments of Bartlett and Thomas is that both appeal to being in general and to thought in general in the interest of their freedom concepts. Bartlett speaks of the realm of personality and the realm of the spirit to which both God and man are subject. Thomas speaks of the reality in general as having certain characteristics over which God has no control. This reality is timeless for God and temporal for man. And this is by the, the, the people who, uh, that process theology where God is finite and so forth, they, they make time eternal. They, they make God is subject to time, like man is subject to time. That's one of their errors. And this is the same thing for these Arminians. This reality is timeless for God and temporal for man. But it is one reality that includes both God and man. God cannot do this or cannot do that because of the nature of reality does not allow it. Arminians reject the doctrine of reality, excuse me, Arminians reject the doctrine of election as taught in scripture as being impossible, as contrary to the law of contradiction. They reject the same doctrine as being out of accord with the aspect of contingency in nature, in reality, or nature as a whole. There is therefore in Arminian theology something of a legacy from the Romanist methodology. The Arminian theologian often accepts what scripture says as far as being in general, and therefore rationality in general allows the rational man to accept its teachings. Making man, making himself the final point of reference, the rational man first determines what is possible and what is impossible in general. He finds that the Christian doctrine of the self-sufficient God and of his complete control of the universe is impossible. It is not in accord. Hang on a minute. It is not in accord with logic. It is also out of accord with the fad of contingency or freedom. The biblical doctrine must be toned down to make it fit in with the nature of reality as already defined without reference to scripture. Okay, let me just stop for a moment. Okay, classical apologetics or, or uh, modern evidential apologetics, and obviously we use evidence as long as we stand on scripture as we do so. But this idea that uh, logic exists there out there and God is both subject to logic as something independent and man is subject to logic as something independent. Therefore, what we want, what the uh, evidentialist, the apologetist wants to say, the classical apologist says, well, what we're going to do is we're going to use uh, inferences, we're going to use logic, and we're going to reason our way to God, but we're going to do so without the Bible starting from a position of human autonomy. You see what they do? So, in other words, they pretend to be a non-unbeliever to try to prove that you should be a believer. <laughs> As where the biblical position is, is all predication, all thought, our whole theory of epistemology is dependent on the existence of the triune God of Scripture. The ontological trinity is the foundation of all predication, in other words. And, and Van Til's absolutely right, and he's brilliant. Once you talk about an independent realm of reality, an independent realm of logic, an independent realm of ideals outside of God, then man, finite, puny, little, sinful man, starts imposing his own concepts upon God. And it leads immediately to heresy. <clears throat> the biblical doctrine must be toned down to make it fit with the nature of reality as already defined without reference to Scripture. The similarity of the Armenian view to that of the Romanists is striking. There's the assumption of the fact, or freedom, or pure contingency, in both cases. Then there is the assumption that the free man is able by means of law of contradiction to legislate as to what is possible or impossible in the realm of being in general. Thus we have something of both the irrationalism and the rationalism of the Romans' position carried over into the theology of Protestantism. 
And it is these foreign elements, both of irrationalism and rationalism, that keep the adherents of Armenian theology from making every thought subject to the obedience of the revelation of God. Naturally, it is also these legacies of foreign or non-Christian thought that make it impossible for the Arminian to challenge the wisdom of the world effectively. For the thought of modern man begins with the assumption of his own ultimacy. That for him is the fact of all facts. It is his uh, basic fact. It follows that for him, God cannot be ultimate. To be sure, he knows that man cannot control the whole of reality. Modern man gladly admits the idea of mystery. He glories in the ideal of mystery by speaking of it as a field where that which is wholly new may come forth. It is not the idea of change and process, progress in science itself, is not the idea of change and progress in science itself based on the idea of the wholly new. Whatever gods there be, we are informed not merely by the pragmatists, but by the idealists as well, are dynamic. The static ideas of Plato are rejected. Reality has an elan vital that never ends. Anything is possible. Out the outset of any investigation, every sort of hypothesis is relevant. Such is the requirement of the idea of pure contingency as is involved in the assumption of man's freedom or ultimacy. And when you think of pure contingency, think of the idea that things are controlled by chance. They're not controlled by God. They're controlled by chance. But this is only one side of the picture. Strange as it may seem at first sight, the irrationalism of the idea of pure contingency requires for its correlative the rationalism of the most absolute determinism. The idea of pure contingency requires the rejection of the Christian doctrine of creation, and providence is logically impossible. Thus, the statement that anything may happen must be qualified by adding that anything but Christianity is possible. And you can see here how secular humanism and modern science, falsely so-called, it's not objective and it's certainly not truly empirical, uh, it's based on presuppositions. You can see how this, all this develops out of these false principles, these false philosophies. So, thus the statement that anything that may happen is qualified by the adding that anything but Christianity is possible. Theoretically speaking, any hypothesis is relevant, but practically speaking, the Christian hypothesis is excluded at the outset of any investigation. We would say it's excluded a priori. Men may follow the facts wherever they may lead, so long as they do not lead to the truth of Christianity. There's nothing surprising in the fact that modern man is both utterly irrationalist and utterly rationalist at the same time. He has to be both in order to be either. And he has to be both in order to defend his basic assumption of his own freedom or ultimacy. About the idea of freedom or contingency pure and simple, nothing can be said. It is the idea of pure, bare, brute, or mere factuality. It is the idea of existence without essence, the idea of being without meaning. Yet modern man must say something about his freedom. Above all, he must, be, he must be defended against those who attack it. And who are they that attack it? Are they the determinists and the rationalists? Not at all. The determinists and rationalists are, they, are what they are in the interest of defending the same autonomy or freedom of man that the indeterminists and irrationalists are defending. The determinist or rationalist differs from the indeterminist or irrationalist merely in the way he defends the ultimacy or autonomy of man. Okay, just to help you understand this. On the one side, you've got uh, the determinism of somebody like B.F. Skinner. Everything is determined by material atoms floating in the void, and therefore you appear to be free. You appear to have freedom. You appear to make your own decisions. However, everything's determined by materialism. That's pure, pure determinacy. 
And then the other position is that everything is chance, randomly floating in the void. But they both come down to the same thing. Man makes the choices. Man determines truth. Man determines reality. They're both fighting against God. Therefore, they have their internal or they have their internal family quarrels. These quarrels center on the one question of how best to defend off the common enemy, which is Christianity. But how then it will be asked does the determinist seek to defend the idea of man's ultimacy or freedom, and therefore the idea of contingency? He does this by seeking to show that reality cannot allow for the creator-creature distinction. Creation out of nothing is said to be impossible. It is said to be impossible because it is contradictory. It would require us to hold that God changed from the status of not being a creator to the status of being the creator of the universe, and that without any change in his being. Reality, therefore, must be of one nature. And if man is contingent, as is assumed, then God must also be contingent. If God is ultimate, then man also is ultimate. If God is free, man is free, with the same freedom with which God is free. And thus, it is thus that the irrationalist may employ the rationalist or determinist to battle for him in a field where he says he does not feel at home. In fact, the free man of modern non-Christian thought is Janus-faced. He turns one way and would seem to be nothing but an irrationalist. He talks about the fact of freedom. He even makes a pretense of being hotly opposed to the rationalist. With Kierkegaard, he will boldly assert that what cannot happen according to the logic has happened in fact. Then he turns the other way and would seem to be nothing but a rationalist. Surely, he says, the rational man will accept nothing but what, is, but what has intelligible meaning for him according to the law of contradiction. There must be coherence in experience. It is meaningless to talk about the entirely single thing. But both in his irrationalist and his rationalist features, the would-be autonomous man is seeking to defend his ultimacy against the claims of the Christian religion. Okay, let's just stop and think about this for a moment. What is the secular humanist doctrine of reality? Well, there was a big bang. There was a speck, this little speck out there how it came about or where it came from, we, we, aren't, we don't know. It just existed. And then it exploded and then the whole universe came into being. And everything, the galaxies and the planets and, and starfish and birds and people all came about simply by time plus chance plus matter. Well, what is that? That's totally irrational. It's pure contingency. Everything is pure contingency. Well, how can you have truth? How can you have something fixed in a system of pure contingency? Well, you can't. So then they turn around and then they act as the rationalists and they say, well, no, man determines what truth is, what the facts are, through a system of using the law of contradiction or, or, or logic and, and rationalism. And so they, they try to hold two completely conflicting and contradictory positions at the same time. Why? Because they are opposed to Christianity, which actually solves the problem, uh, which finds predication and meaning in the ontological trinity of scripture, starting with God, starting with the triune God and his revelation. Continuing, if he is right as an irrationalist, then he is not a creature of God. If he are a creature of God, he would be subject to the law of God. He would thus be rationally related to God. He would know that he is a creature of God and that he should obey the law of God. If he is right as a rationalist, then he too is not a creature of God. The law that he then thinks of is, is above him, he also thinks as above God. God and he were, are, for him, subject to a common law. If he were a creature of God, he would grant that what God has determined and only that is possible. 
He would then subject his logical manipulation of reality to the revelation of God. It is this Janus-faced covenant-breaker, then, who must be one for the gospel. It is he who walks the streets of New York and London, but, and no one but he, but he does. All men are sinners. All are interested in suppressing the fact of their creaturehood. The irrationalists and the rationalists have become friends in the face of their common foe, and this common foe is historic Christianity. The implication of all this for the Christian apologetics is plain. There can be no appeasement between those who presuppose in their thought the sovereign God and, and those who presuppose in all their thought the would-be sovereign man. There can be no other point of contact between them than that of a head-on collision. The root of both irrationalism and rationalism is the idea of the ultimacy of man. If this root is not taken out, it will do little good to trim off some of the wildest offshoots of irrationalism with the help of rationalism or to trim off some of the wildest offshoots of rationalism with the help of irrationalism. Yet both Romanism and Arminian Protestantism leave the root assumption of the modern man untouched. And they leave this root assumption unchallenged because the root assumption of their own theology partakes in a measure of the root assumption of the foes of the Christian religion. Romanism, and in a lesser degree Arminianism, cannot challenge the heresy of those who worship and serve the creature more than the creator because they themselves are not willing to serve the Creator exclusively. Only the Reformed faith, which, you know, which the five points of Calvinism truly teaches the real sovereignty of God over all reality, only the Reformed, only the Reformed faith is full justice done to the idea that man is a creature of God and that he must therefore live exclusively by the revelation of God. All the facts which man deals, whether in nature or in scripture, are revelational of the will of God for man. All these facts claim man's obedient love and worship of God. And now that man has become a sinner, he must turn to the Bible for the final light in which he must find the meaning of all the facts that confront him anywhere. Let us think, then, in terms of an offensive warfare on the part of those who worship and serve the Creator rather than the creature, against those who worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. It is this which all Protestants want. But if they want it, then let them not first ask for permission to believe in, quote, the possibility of the book. From those who determine the possibility of anything in terms of modern, the modern contingency idea. Okay, and this is where liberals, uh, Christian liberals or modernists, uh, through their human autonomy, their absolute foolishness, will say, well, we don't believe that the Bible is the word of God. Uh, because they presuppose it isn't the word of God. It's ridiculous. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous. But this is what they do. True Protestants, true Protestantism starts from the fact or actuality of the book. The meaning of the word possibility is first determined by the God who has spoken to sinners through the book. That and that only is possible which the God of the Bible determines. The idea of the possibility of the book is no better than the idea of the possibility of a book. The Armonian theologian will argue, as did Bishop Butler and as did Thomas Aquinas, for the possibility and probability of God's existence and of his revelation to man in terms of some chain of being, which has some measure of contingency in it. Again, the idea of, the idea of uh, classical apologetics is to arrive at saying, it is probable that God exists. It is probable that the Bible is true. It is 
pro classical apologetics. It is probable that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, that's not how the Bible speaks. It speaks of the assurance of faith. When you start talking like a pagan to try to prove your position as a Christian, you're in a bad, you're, you're in a bad place. Protestantism will make the creator-creature distinction fundamental in its thought. This involves the idea of the supernatural, positive thought, communication on the part of God to man from the outset of the human experience. God spoke to Adam even in paradise. Man was never left to the study of natural revelation alone. Natural revelation was from the outset, a history, uh, outset of history accompanied and supplemented by supernatural revelation. The two were involved in one another. They were supplemental to one another. They were unintelligible, the one without the other. There's been no time in the history of the human race when man was expected to look at nature alone and ask whether God exists. Man was from the beginning confronted with the fact of God's clear-cut communication of himself to man. Man was to see the place and function of nature in relation to the purpose it was to serve in human life. And the purpose of human life was, for, was set forth to man by direct supernatural communication. Okay, we need nature. You know, when you read the Bible that Jesus is king, you need to know what a king is, <laughs> you see. So you need both. You need special revelation and uh, natural revelation. The bearing of this of the doctrine of Scripture is clear. Even before man, sin man sinned, he walked in the light of supernatural thought communication given to him by God. Supernatural thought communication is inherent in the human situation. It is involved in the creator-creature relationship. Without such communication, life would be meaningless for man. It is impossible intellectually to think of man without supernatural thought communication to him on the part of God. The Bible simply carries on this communication after the fall of man into sin. The Bible is the supernatural thought communication of God to the creatures who have become sinners. Sinners would seek to destroy any thought form, any such form of such communication that might come to them. So God made provision for a form of revelation which sinners, try as they may, cannot destroy. This communication, as deposited in Scripture, is one in terms of which human life is alone intelligible. There is no meaningful predication about anything except in the light of the revelation of the God who speaks to sinners in the book. This is brilliant stuff. Very simple, but brilliant. It is therefore mandatory that Reformed theologians urge their fellow Protestants everywhere, to call upon matter man to interpret his life in terms of the book of God, and therefore in terms of the God of the book. Only thus can there be a real meaning of minds, a real point of contact with those who must be one for the gospel, and a real challenge of the, wis the wisdom of the world in its modern form. If Protestantism first asks for permission to believe in the possibility of the book, it will surely be given this permission and be assigned a place as a satellite under the dictatorship of the modern mind. That is that's absolutely brilliant and absolutely true. And then the next topic, the modern, the modern mind. The modern mind will never give permission to believe in the book. The basic notion of freedom or contingency might at first sight seem to allow even for a belief in the Bible as the word of God. <clears throat> but when this notion of freedom is taken not merely as a fact but as a reason fact, then it soon appears that it excludes Christianity. The modern man stands for the, for the defense of his freedom. He makes himself believe that he is thus the custodian of true civilization and progress. In reality, he is suppressing in his own mind the fact that he is a creature of God and should seek his true freedom in obedience to God. 
What then will be the response of the modern man to this challenge of the Gospel of Paul? The response will be based upon the wholly unexamined assumption of his own ultimacy, autonomy, or freedom. On the basis of this uncritical assumption, the modern man will find the Gospel of Paul to be A, out of accord with fact, and B, out of accord with the requirements of logic. Paul's gospel tells the modern man that he is a creature of God. Modern man assumes that he is not a creature of God. Thus, he virtually asserts that the idea of creaturehood is out of accord with the fact of freedom. Then, when asked to tell what his freedom means, he proves that it is contradictory to the idea of creation. Thus, he has proved, so he thinks, that creation out of nothing is out of accord with logic. As an irrationalist, he assumes that the brute fact of freedom as a rationalist, he defends what he thinks is his same freedom by showing that it would be destroyed by the doctrine of creation. As an irrationalist, the modern mind assumes the entirely single thing. As a rationalist, he makes universal negative propositions about all possibility. And let me just stop for a moment to help you understand. He assumes all pure contingency. Everything came out of chance. Flux. Everything is in flux. Man is water, made out of water, tried to climb a stair of water into a sky of water. But then he turns around and he makes these dogmatic assertions about reality as a rationalist, which absolutely contradict his central foundation and thesis that man, everything came out of flux. You see, it's completely contradictory. He's holding pure rationalism and pure irrationalism together in contradiction. It's absolute nonsense. Paul's gospel tells the modern man that he is a creature of God. Modern man assumes that he is not a creature of God. He assertly, thus he virtually asserts that the idea of creaturehood is out of accord with the fact of freedom. Then when he asks to tell us what freedom means, he proves that it is contradictory to the idea of creation. Thus he has proved, so he has thinks. Now what is true of the doctrine of creation is equally true of the doctrine of providence and of miracle. The modern man will gladly accept any and all of these doctrines if only they may be taken as brute facts. When he accepts these doctrines, the modern man acts as an irrationalist. Of course, he says, we want the idea of providence and of miracle. We are open-minded and ready to receive any and every fact for which reasonable testimony can be given. Perhaps the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus are well-attested facts. Why should we not receive them? And if you say that you have been born again, we shall accept your testimony to this fact at face value. It is here that the evangelical or conservative is likely to fall into a trap. For the moment, he sees only the irrationalist face of modern man. He does not realize that as soon as the doctrines of providence or miracle are accepted by the modern mind, that they are also destroyed. As an irrationalist, the modern man will readily accept all the facts of Paul's gospel, but as a rationalist, he will he will classify and naturalize and thus destroy every one of those facts. The facts of Christianity will be accepted as raw recruits, but the finished soldier is the raw recruit classified and drilled on the authority of man himself. The main point that we are concerned to make in this section is that Arminians, though in distinction from Roman Catholics, they claim to stand firm upon the Bible as the final revelation of God are yet unable to challenge, effectively, the methodology of modern man. Their doctrine of free will makes them a ready prey to the modern notion of 
contingency. Their refusal to accept the doctrine of the all-controlling plan of God is itself a rationalistic, of a rationalistic character. It assumes that that cannot be true, which man cannot penetrate ex- exhaustively by logic. Thus, it is to be expected that they will also fall prey to the modern idea of rationalism. Now, we're, we're going to stop there. It's brilliant stuff. The Christian position is that every fact is a God-created and God-controlled fact. And that if you want to understand any fact correctly, truly, you have to look at that fact in terms of the whole Christian world and life view revealed in the Bible. If you don't do that, if you believe in what Van Til calls brute facts, that is just facts, there are things out there and they're defined by autonomous man and they can only be defined by autonomous man, then you cannot know truth. Now, unbelievers are inconsistent and sometimes steal from Christian principles. But what Van Til is showing is that based on their own presuppositions, their own philosophy of life, their own world and life view, uh, they can't explain anything. Truly, it's a, it's a big system of lies based on a system of lies. But we'll, we'll continue this next week. But if you haven't studied Van Til, I know he's a little hard to read. This is one of his easier works, but he, he's, he's, he's not the best writer. He, he was raised speaking Dutch, and then he learned English. So he's, his English isn't the best. His writing skills aren't the best. But he's thoroughly worth studying. And I know there's some controversy, you know, uh, about univocal knowledge or analogical knowledge and all these kind of things. And I think that the followers of Gordon Clark have not been charitable to Van Til, and the followers of Van Til haven't necessarily been charitable to Gordon Clark. But I think if the, yeah, if Bonson has explained some of Van Til's more obscure things, uh, and, and if we cut Van Til some slack, I think he's, he's fine. But his system as a whole, as, a, as an apologetic system, as a Christian, philosoph- a Christian philosophy of life, Christian philosophy of reality. It's absolutely genius. It's brilliant. And it completely destroys secular humanism. Totally destroys it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our brother, until we thank you for his writings, that they continue to do good for the kingdom. Help us to understand this and be consistent with it. As we're all born Arminians, we're all born as humanists, as worshippers of self, as worshippers of human autonomy. So help us to make every thought captive under the obedience of Christ. Help prepare our hearts, change our minds through your word so that we would uh, be ready and willing to defend the gospel before atheists and unbelievers and wicked fools every day. In Jesus' name, amen.